everybody had a good Christmas. Just a belated Merry Christmas to you, Happy New Year to you. Glad to see everybody. I know we've got a lot of folks traveling, including our pastor. If you're visiting with us this morning, I'm not the pastor. It's kind of a good news, bad news thing. The, uh, the good news is if you come back next week, the preaching will be much better. Uh, the bad news is my son will be gone, so the drumming will be a whole lot worse. So you can just kind of, you know, just kind of pick your poison there. But that's, uh, that's kind of what you, in the spirit of full disclosure, that's what you have to look forward to. This morning, if you'll open your Bibles to the book of Psalms, I want to share with you uh, what really is, I guess, probably, if not my favorite psalm, probably one of my most favorite psalms, and that is Psalm 1. And uh, when Graham asked me if I would preach, uh, just kind of clicking around in my mind and thinking about the different ways I might go, uh, Psalm 1 just kept rolling through uh, my mind. I guess because it is, is so simple, so straightforward, so concise, so to the point, um, it, uh, it really has just challenged me and inspired me over and over again in my life. And it really, I guess, is people talk about having life verses. This is probably one of my life verses. Uh, if, if you're allowed to have multiple life verses. I'm not sure what the rule is on that. But uh, Psalm 1 is obviously the first book in the book of Psalms as you're turning there. But it's really kind of, uh, it, it really sort of serves as the introduction to the rest of the Psalms. So not only in position, but sort of in content. It has a, as you read it, it has a real familiar feel to it. It feels a whole lot like a proverb. It reads like a proverb in its form and its content. Uh, and, and as a result of that, it's been classified as, as one of the wisdom psalms because it really does have that, that feel. Its theme is very basic, as I just told you a while ago. It's, it's general, it's simple, uh, but it's not only as big and introductory as the book of Psalms, it's as big as the whole Bible, the whole scope of the Bible because it really gets to, down to the fundamentals of, of this life. It presents two ways of life, the way of righteousness and the way of the wicked. It declares the blessedness of the righteous in this life and the life to come and the misery and the ultimate end of the wicked. It, it tells us that the key to the blessedness of the, uh, and the fruitfulness of the righteous is, to, to, uh, is seen in a love for and a commitment to God's word. In the end, the blessings of the righteous and the judgment of the wicked are ultimately determined by God's knowledge of them. It talks about those that God knows and those that God doesn't know. God knows and cares for those who belong to him, but those who have rejected both his written word, scripture, and his living word, his son, Jesus Christ, will ultimately be confirmed in their rebellion. And uh, the psalmist goes on to tell us that they will not be under, able to stand under his judgment. So it's, it's very simple. It's very basic. Uh, it's, it's, it's lessons that are taught over and over again, not only in the Psalms, not only in the Proverbs, but over and over again in scripture, that we all, there's really only two classes of people in this world there's not uh we're not ultimately classified by who our mom and dad is what our socioeconomic makeup is whether we're black white brown uh tall fat short none of that really matters none of that makes any difference ultimately god classifies every human being on the planet based on one of two categories those who are righteous and those who are wicked those who are on the path to eternal life and those who are on the path to eternal separation from him. And every one of us are on one of those two paths. There is no option C. That's the only two options that we have. And, and 
So with this kind of brief summary, and it's very brief intentionally because I've got a lot of content here, I'm, I'm notorious for trying to jam too much into uh, a particular period of time, so my wife has already warned me that I need to get about it and move on, and, and so uh, I'm going to do that, and I want to just kind of drill down into this psalm and look at it with you one section at a time, uh, one detail at a time, and, uh, and I hope it'll, it uh, will speak to you in the way that it spoke to me. The first thing that I want to draw your attention to is it talks about blessed is the one, okay? Blessed is the one. Davis tells the, David tells us, most people assume that David was the writer of this, this book. That's true. He's telling us that the blessed man is one who avoids certain things and he delights in other things. But before we look too far into the, to the detail of that blessed man, I want to take just a minute to properly understand what's meant by the term to be blessed, Okay. The basic meaning of the word, and I don't know Hebrew, but I'm thankful for, the, for the, the interweb, as my son Case calls it jokingly. I'm thankful for the interweb and for all the teachers and folks who are much smarter than me and that I can, can drill down and study and, and, and sort of draw these things out. The basic meaning of that word blessed is happiness or blessedness. Okay, And it's plural in the Hebrew, and it literally means, Oh, the blessednesses. Okay, plural. Oh, the ble- can you say can you say that with me? Oh, the blessednesses, or oh, the blessings of this one. And it could be paraphrased if we want to just paraphrase it in modern day terms. We could say, Oh, how very happy is the one who. Okay, so what Scripture's talking about here is is a happiness, a, a, a contentment. But it's not a happiness, and we'll clarify this. It's not a happiness in the typical term that we think about it, okay? It's a spiritual happiness. It's a blessedness from God, okay? Now, I want to clarify a couple of things that it's not. It's not an unconditional promise. Scripture doesn't unconditionally promise everyone happiness, okay? It's more in the form of of a beatitude, uh, like Matthew chapter 5, where where Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are those who seek righteousness. So it's, it's it's a promise. It's a pronouncement of blessing, upon a certain group of people who meet a certain requirement, who, who are found within a certain group, okay? Not unconditional, it's conditional. Secondly, it's not a promise of a life without problems. I want to be clear about that. But it is, to, to balance that, it is a promise of real happiness, real contentment, real joy, okay? It is a promise of that, and it's, it's something that we have to understand. So not lacking of problems, but certainly a real happiness that can only be found in God. And it's not speaking about complying with some kind of systems of, system of works or self-righteousness or with some kind of special formula uh, so you know a person may experience this blessedness. Instead, it's promising blessing to those whose lives are characterized by certain qualities as the outcome of faith and a relationship with God. So I want to be clear about that. One commentator put it this way in talking about sort of summing this idea up. He said, the principle here is that certain things corrupt. They tear down and they destroy. Other things build up, develop, make fruitful, and give us the capacity and means for happiness through trust and fellowship in God. So the psalmist is telling us the blessed man avoids the former things, these things that uh, tear down, that corrupt, and he pursues the latter things, those things that develop, make fruitful, build up. Okay, So let's take those one at a time and kind of dig into them. So first of all, 
He's the blessed man who does not walk, first of all, verse 1, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The word walk is a metaphor that basically has the idea to go along with, follow a course of action. It has the idea of going along with or, or, or to use or follow. So the blessed man is one who has intentionally chosen not to follow this path, okay? This counsel of the wicked, this path of the wicked. And counsel has the idea of purpose or plan or resolution of will. It really refers to sort of the mental attitude or a state of mind or a viewpoint that determines the decisions that we make. And it just reinforces what Scripture tells us. As a man thinketh, what? So is he, okay? The battle for us is always won or lost first right here in our minds. As a man thinketh, so is he. So it's talking about this mental attitude, this state of mind that's to be avoided. The man of blessedness is one has determined that he's going to walk by the counsel of God, the whole counsel of God, not by emotions, not by experience, not by popular opinion, not by any of those things. And, and we all live in a world where there are so many voices that are speaking truth, supposedly, allegedly, speaking into our lives. I mean, every time we turn on the radio, every time we turn on the television, every time we talk to our neighbor, every time we, talk, we go to work and we hang out with people, there's constantly these things that are be, being spoken into our lives, many of which are not truth and are not consistent with God's counsel. And so this counsel that he's talking about, that the, that the blessed man does not walk in, uh, has its source in the wicked. It's this kind of counsel that we have to avoid. And the word wicked in the Hebrew has its root idea to be loose or unstable. Uh, really carries two ideas here, okay? First, it means to be loose with, it, with reference to morals, okay? So these are, in other words, immoral, without God, restraint or control. But it also means ungodly or godless, negative towards God, loose from God, without Him as an anchor or a controlling factor. And it refers to those who are guided and controlled by their own desires, their own emotions, their own impulses of the mind, guided by the flesh, because they don't have the Word and they don't have the Spirit. So the blessed man, first of all, avoids the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't listen to all those voices that are speaking all of these things into his or her life that aren't true, that are being poured into our minds day in and day out through computer and television and and, and uh, radio and the people we know and the people we associate with, he doesn't allow those to be the thing that determines truth in his life, okay? But that's not all. He avoids a second thing. Not only does he not walk in the counsel of the wicked, he does not stand in the path of sinners. The word stand means to stop, to be firm. So from merely walking in their... There's sort of a progression here that you've got to pick up on, okay? So from merely walking in their counsel, one becomes more confirmed in the way of the wicked, potentially, more involved, more influenced. And so it connotes movement toward the formation of habits and patterns. So it's possible to go from thinking like the world to now sort of behaving like the world, all right? So that's the kind of movement that we're talking about here. Path is the Hebrew word for a way or a course of action, a journey. Uh, manner, it refers to one's conduct, behavior patterns, Habits, responses. So here we see patterns forming and becoming entrenched. From thinking like the world, a person can begin to act like the world. And the word sinners here, in the first prohibition, it's the wicked, and the second, it's sinners. Those, that word are, is related to those who fall short, those who miss the mark. The mark is the will of God, the plan of God, as revealed in Scripture. And sin is the transgression of the law. 
It's, it is whatever misses the will of God for us, doctrinally or morally. And the thing is, we're all sinners. We've all missed the mark. We, none of us, I mean, Romans 3 talks about there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none who seeks after God. So we all miss the mark. None of us are perfect, nor will we ever be perfect in this life. And this is why Christ had to die for our sins, so that we might have his righteousness. But sinners here refers to those who deliberately chosen a way of life, a path contrary to the plan of God is revealed in his word. So these folks have made a deliberate choice. And the man of blessedness, the man who's on the receiving end of that blessing, chooses to direct his life by God's plan according to his inspired and inerrant word. So he's not walking according to the advice, the counsel of the wicked, and he doesn't slow down to stand in the path of sinners, okay? He doesn't think like the ungodly, and he doesn't allow those thought processes to conform him to ungodly patterns. He avoids both of those. But there's a third thing, and again, it's sort of a downward progression. Nor sit in the seat of the scornful. Sit in the Hebrew word, so we've gone from walking to standing, let me kind of hang out here a little while, see what's going on, to now we're sitting. Okay, you see the progression? Sitting means to sit, dwell, remain, abide. Uh, It emphasizes a thoroughly settled state or condition, sort of settling down, getting comfortable, content with the world, content with its patterns, entrenched in their lives. And this seat that it speaks of has a couple of nuances of meaning. A seat is a place of sitting, Uh, Or it can be an assembly where many people gather together to make deals, have close associations. But the point is this. When you're sitting in that seat, when you're sitting in anyone's seat, uh, according to this idiom that's used, uh, you act like or become what they are. In, In other words, you're sort of viewed as being like them. You're viewed as being in a confederacy with them. With who? With scoffers. Who are scoffers? They're those who mock. Ridicule, scoff, deride. And in this context, it refers to habitual action. These are people that that's just how they live. That's, that's how they live their lives. They scoff at everything that's godly. They, they talk down. They ridicule everything that's related to Christ and God and Christians. And so it refers to one who is actively engaged in putting down the things of God in his word. So in looking at this sort of sequential, sort of downward drag of sin... It's easy to see that people don't just remain passive about God. It's not possible. You can't. Passivity towards God in His Word ultimately leads to activity in sin. And finally, that activity in sin leads to overt activity against God. That's just kind of how it works. It's just sort of the law of life. It's kind of like the law of gravity. So how do people scoff at the Word? Well, there's a lot of things uh, that it could be. And I just want to clarify a few. could be just outright blatant ridicule rejection but it could also be indifference Uh, we think we've got a better way or we think we've got better things to do with our time or it could simply be by substituting one's own ideas experiences emotions feelings in other words we we scoff at god's word when we elevate something else up higher than than it okay so in other words we, we don't deal with our finances based on what God's Word says about our finances. We deal with our finances based on what we want or what somebody else taught us or what we just sort of came up with. 
And we don't lead our family the way God says lead our family. We lead our family the way our parents led their family or the way somebody else leads their family. In other words, we're elevating something up as an authority higher than God's Word rather than going back to God's Word and saying, this is the authority, this is how I'm going to do it. That's scoffing. And it can also be just listening to the Word being proclaimed just like you are today then ignoring it. In essence, we scoff at the Word when we fail to obey it. And order our lives according to anything other than the Word of God. So these verses, these verses really sort of pose a warning. They teach us how a person little by little can step out of the place of blessedness and into the place of misery and cursing with horrible consequences. First, we can begin to think with the viewpoint of the wicked. Then, just as a natural progression... We begin to behave more like sinners, not all at once. It's a gradual process. It's shades of gray. Casting Crowns has a great song that talks about a slow fade. It is a slow fade. It is a gradual process. It doesn't happen overnight. It's just little by little, little increments. So we go from thinking to behaving and acting more like them, and then we can too easily become an associate so we're literally seating, sitting in the seat of scoffers. We're scoffing at God's plan, and, and not directly necessarily, but in these ways that are more nuanced, that are more subtle. We're scoffing at His plan. We're ignoring His counsel. So how can we avoid this? Well, Psalm 2 gives us our answer. The man who experiences great blessing is the one who has a love affair with God's Word. He or she is a person of the Scriptures. Note that the quality which characterizes the life of the blessed about everything above everything else, which could be mentioned right here, the thing that, that separates or, or, or sort of defines this blessed person is their relationship to the Word of God. And that's consistent with the emphasis throughout Scripture. So let's go from the negative, what this blessed person avoids, to now the positive. What do they do in place of that? How is it they, they can avoid those things? It's because... He's, his delight, it says in verse 2, is in the law of the Lord. His delight is in the law of the Lord. And that word but introduces a very strong contrast. You could translate it but rather. And the word delight could be translated simply to take pleasure in. He takes pleasure in the word. He finds pleasure in it. And the, uh, the theological word book of the Old Testament points out that this word may be used for, for that which a person wishes strongly to do or have. It means to feel great favor towards something. The emphasis of the word is that the desire is caused in the subject by the intrinsic qualities that are found in the object desired. So he delights in the word simply because it is the word of God. And I heard somebody say one time uh, in telling a story about a critic, a scoffer really, who's really being critical of Christians and saying, you know, these Christians, they talk about the Word of God and how this Bible is the Word of God and it was spoken by God. And he said, that's not true. He said, every one of you are not being truthful. Because I tell you one thing, if you really thought that this was the Word of the one true and living God, you would rip the cover off of it trying to get inside it to see what it says. And yet, what do we do? We put it on a shelf and we let it collect dust we bring it to church on Sundays. We read over it. We listen to the preacher preach. We sing about it. 
And yet so many times we go on about our way the rest of our lives. We do our business the way we want to do our business. We raise our families the way we want to raise them. We handle our money the way we want to handle our money. We spend it on what we want. We determine our priorities. We determine our pleasure. We decide how we want to run our lives. But that's not the path of blessedness. The blessed man understands that this is truly the word of the living God. And why would you not want to hear what it had to say why would you not delight in that that God had revealed himself to us that he had given us everything that pertains to life and godliness in this book the blessed man understands that he takes pleasure in that in the Hebrew word verb form of this noun is actually used several times of a man taking pleasure or finding delight in the woman that he loves In the Old Testament, Israel was viewed as the wife of Yahweh. Of course, in the New Testament, the church is the bride of Jesus Christ. And the written word is God's love letter to us. And we we come to Him, and we know more about Him, and we learn to be more intimate with Him, and we love to learn Him, love Him more deeply through His word. Just as one would read the love letters of his or her sweetheart, so we are to read and study God's word with the same delight. That's the sense here of this, this blessed person who delights in the word. One reason scripture is such a delight, and the psalmist talks about it being like honey in the honeycomb, is because it's truth. And we're surrounded with so much error, so much inconsistency, so many things that are, that are spoken that aren't accurate, that aren't reliable, that aren't trustworthy, that you can't hang your hat on. And those messages are coming at us from umpteen jillion directions and the voices never stop. They're always there. They're always speaking untruths into our lives. One of the things that makes Scripture so delightful is it is truth. It is truth. It's accurate. It's reliable. It's powerful. And not only does he, medit- not only does he delight in it, it goes on to say, "...and in his law he meditates day and night." Day and night really is an idiom that just means all the time, constantly, consistently, regularly. This means that this man of blessedness that we're talking about, he's occupied, really preoccupied with God's Word. Uh, It's on his mind, it's on his heart all the time. Everywhere he is, in every situation, every area of life, he's always thinking about and looking at life through the lens of Scripture. When he's on his way to church and a car pulls out in front of him and he wants to get in the flesh... He thinks about Scripture. When he's had an argument with his wife and he knows he's wrong and he knows that what he said or did wasn't right, Scripture comes to his mind. When he's at work and he's tempted to do something that's unethical or not right, Scripture comes back into his mind. It's always there. He's always thinking about it. It's always a lamp to his feet. It's always a light to his path. And that word translated meditates is a very comprehensive term for for the study and the application of the word to one's life. It involves thinking about what scripture means, how and when it, where it should be applied. Included with this idea, obviously, would be reading, hearing, studying, memorizing, so you can accurately think about scripture and apply it. You You can't understand scripture if you don't meditate on it. So this man, this blessed man, is really sort of has a negative side and a positive side. Negatively, he avoids all the, 
all the sinful influences, all the ungodly voices, all the ungodly associations, all the ungodly influences that are constantly there in one form or fashion in his life. And in place of that, almost like in place of an adulteress, a husband loving his wife and delighting in his wife and pursuing his wife and wanting to spend time with his wife and wanting to know his wife, that's sort of the sense of this man. And he's blessed because of those two things, because of what he avoids and because of what he delights in and how he orients his life towards that. Now, he gives us a picture. That's sort of the principle. Then he gives us a picture, a beautiful word picture in verse 3. He says, he, he shall be like a tree. And I'll just I'll read the full verse. Uh, and I, I have it in a different translation. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Now, this, this obviously would have been a very illuminating sort of word picture in the Middle East where a lot of the area is very arid, very dry. So this lush, green, big, beautiful tree with leaves that are green all the time and producing fruit all the time in its due season, healthy, stable. I mean, that would be quite a contrast and it would really resonate with them. But I got to tell you, I've lived in East Texas most of my life and, and one of the things that that at least two of my boys and I love to do is, is get on four-wheelers and just go out in the woods and ride. And we spent the better part of Friday in the woods, in the bottom of Mud Creek, riding four-wheelers. And, and this analogy, this word picture really resonates with me because anytime you get in an area like that, where there's creeks, where there's water, you always see these big, beautiful oak trees. It may be a water oak, it may be a red oak, it may be a, a white oak, but you see these trees that are huge, that have trunks just abnormally large and that have huge canopies. And it seems like they're always green and they never, their leaves never fade and they're stable. I mean, we just went through some of the worst drought in history in the last couple of years. And, let, and yet those kinds of trees, they're still there. They're still healthy. They're still growing. They're still green. A lot of other trees are gone. You see the picture? That's what he's talking about here, okay? He's, he's talking about this metaphor. So let's just flesh it out just a little bit. What does the picture teach us? Well, let's think about this just a minute. First, a tree has deep roots. It's usually very sturdy, especially when compared to something like chafe, which he's about to compare it to. So there's a picture here of stability, the capacity to withstand storms, withstand droughts, okay? Because we know the storms are coming, the droughts are going to come. He's not saying that if you, if you avoid ungodly influences and you spend time delighting in God's Word and meditating on it that you're not ever going to have any problems. He's saying you can be that kind of tree that even when the drought comes, you're going to make it. Even when the winds blow, your roots are deep enough and strong enough and significant enough that you will still be standing when they get through blowing. That's what he's talking about here, stability. It's a picture of mental and emotional and spiritual stability in every kind of situation. But it also pictures the concept of growth and time because it takes time for that kind of tree to grow, a lot of time. And, and you know, you don't get to be these 8,500-foot huge water oak trees or, or, or whatever kind of tree in a, in, a, in a little period of time. It takes time. And the problem is we live in an, an era and a time where 
We don't want anything to take time. We want to put our food in a microwave and hit a button and, you know, 1.5 minutes later it comes out and it's hot and it's ready to eat. But that's not how it works. And sometimes people get discouraged because they spend time studying God's Word and they, they make what they think is a diligent effort, a valiant effort at it. And after three or four days or a week, they say, well, that didn't work. Didn't work. I tried it for a week. Went to church two weeks. I mean, I've heard people make those kinds of statements. Oh, that stuff doesn't work. But it, it takes time. We don't grow physically in a day or in a week. We don't grow spiritually in a day or a week. So it's a concept of time, growth over time. But it's also a picture of ministry if you think about it. If a tree is a fruit tree, then it gives fruit. If it's an oak, it gives shade or acorns. In other words, God's given us his word that we might become fruitful, that we might provide ministry, that we might be involved in ministry and his service and ministry to others. Okay? It's, it's, it's essentially what 2 Timothy, Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's what the word does in us when we delight in it, when we spend time in it, when we orient our lives around it. So it's a tree, and it's, it goes on to say, firmly planted by streams of water. Uh, the word planted, I don't want to get into too much detail, but the word planted actually means transplanted. See, this is not just a tree that was planted somewhere. This is a tree that was taken out of one place that was not very conducive to growth and transplanted by rivers of water in a place that was very conducive to growth. So there's, there is a transplanting that's happened here. So you, you've, you've got a very significant point of application here. Before we were saved, we were in Adam. The Bible said we were dead in our trespasses and sin. But God in His grace has transplanted us into Jesus Christ. He's taken us out of Satan's kingdom, kingdom of darkness, brought us into the kingdom of His Son, the kingdom of light. That all happened as a matter of God's grace. And with this new position also comes new provisions and resources for life, namely the Holy Spirit and the Word, which are both likened to streams of living water in Scripture. So you have an unmistakable picture here of God's grace in this idea of being transplanted. As John MacArthur says, trees don't transplant themselves, and sinful people don't transfer themselves into God's kingdom. Salvation is a wonderful work of grace. But we have a responsibility. We must, in the practical application of this, personally to respond to his plan. We must choose to not live in the counsel of the ungodly, but to live by the streams of water, the word of God, and God's provision for learning it. In New Testament terms, what are we talking about? We're talking about spending time in God's word on a regular basis. It's not enough for the tree just to be planted by the water. There have to be roots that draw it up. There has to be tissue that allows it to move through the tree. And there has to be photosynthesis that happens in the leaves. I'm an ag major, okay? All of that has to take place. And so there's sort of a picture of our responsibility. We have a responsibility to allocate those resources. But there is a picture of God's grace in this 
So these streams of living water just continues to kind of paint this picture. Water refers to canals or water courses provided for irrigation. So again, you could see God's grace. So by way of application, God has provided His inspired Word, the canon of Scripture. He's provided gifted teachers in the church, but it's the believer's responsibility to respond to God's provision, regularly put themselves in a position where they can drink from the water, so to speak. He goes on to say this tree yields its fruit in due season. And uh, obviously there's a principle here. Don't miss it. First comes the root, then comes the fruit. You can't be fruitful for God until you have roots that are drawing on His resources. You just can't. It's a biblical principle. What's true of trees is true of believers. First the word with obedience and application, and then there is the production of fruit. The word yield... Or yields, which it yields in fruit, in, in, uh, means to give, in the sense there stresses continual action. And it kind of reminds us of 1 Thessalonians 2.13 that, that, that talks about the fact that, or reminds us that constantly living in the Word should result in continued fruitfulness. There's been an openness to hear and to act on it. How much fruit should each tree have? It depends on a lot of factors. Okay? Not every tree bears the same amount of fruit. But fruit is a mark of life. No fruit, no life. So every tree should bear some fruit. And in this case, this tree is very fruitful. It gives its fruit in season, at the appropriate time, in the suitable time. What's fruit? What are we talking about there? Well, in Scripture, fruit is characterized by a number of things. It's characterized in Galatians 5 uh, as uh, basically being the fruit of the Spirit or the character traits of Christ. Uh, fruit is talked about in terms of the exercise of our spiritual gifts, okay? However God has gifted us, using those gifts, ministering to others. It's also fruit is talked about within the context of witnessing, leading people to Christ. All of those things are fruit in scriptural terms. And again, it, it literally yields its fruit in its time, its proper season. And it says its leaves will not wither. Again, you just have this picture of vitality, of being green, healthy plants in spite of the conditions. Uh, a plant which is planted by streams of water, like we've talked about, it has the capacity to endure. Drought, storms, whatever. Uh, you have this principle of life in the water being drawn up. And it goes on to say, uh, almost sort of a shocking statement about this person that's been uh, shown in this picture of this tree. And whatever he does prospers. Whatever he does prospers. Literally, this could be translated. I spent a lot of time on this. Literally, this could be translated. In all that he may do, he continually or repeatedly prospers. The word translated prospers means to prosper, succeed, or be profitable. And the root means to accomplish satisfactorily what is intended. Real prosperity results from the work of God in the life of one who meditates on his word. Now, you may ask, does, okay, that's kind of a bold statement. Does God really mean that? All in whatever he does, he prospers? Of course he does. God does mean that. But we can't let our minds pour thoughts into that, that verse that's not there. Uh, this doesn't become a blank check that we can just fill out however we want to. The, the, the blessed man prospers first because he always seeks to operate within the framework of God's will. 
according to God's values and God's purpose. He's the one who delights. Remember, he delights in the Word. He meditates in the Word. So everything he does starts there. And it's just the same principle where Scripture talks about the fact that he will give the person who delights in the Word the desires of his heart. That doesn't mean that God gives us everything that we desire. It means that he gives us the desires that are in our hearts. It's Scripture that determines our desires. The man that meditates on the Word of God, that delights in the Word of God, doesn't want anything that's not pleasing to God, doesn't want anything that's outside of the will of God or outside or inconsistent with the Word of God. That man will prosper in everything that he does. He will. So again, this doesn't have to do with no adversity, no failure. The reality is God sometimes engineers failure. Sometimes as an instrument of reproof because we've gone wrong. Sometimes as an instrument of growth because we just need to move on in our lives. Sometimes God has to engineer failure and pressures us uh, before he can bring about some kind of success or blessing in our lives. But it's always his kind of success. And sometimes God allows suffering, sometimes severe suffering, just as he did in the life of Job. But the kind of prosperity that God primarily has in mind here is a spiritual prosperity, discernment, godly character. But on the other hand, you gotta, you gotta, we've, we've got to concede to the fact that people who spend time in the Word, who delight in the Word of God, they're going to gain the capacity to be wise and stable in areas such as their business as they go to the office and do what they do for a living. And that stability, that wisdom might lead to a promotion, might lead to a raise, but it also might lead to persecution. Also might lead to promotion that doesn't come because you had to take your stand on God as opposed to being willing to compromise in an area. And it also might mean it costs you your job. But that's part of the deal. It, all, it also could mean the capacity to be healthier. I mean... A joyful heart is good medicine, Proverbs says, and since godliness may produce the discipline that leads to eating wisely and exercising regularly, it could be that it leads to spending time in God's Word, delighting in God's Word, could, could lead to good health. But the main thing, those are all byproducts. The main thing is we must judge prosperity not by physical wealth or even physical health, but primarily by the spiritual growth and the capacity for life with people in service to God. So he's talked about as this blessed man who avoids ungodly influences, who delights in God's word, meditates on it, and he's likened to this, this really awesome word picture of this tree, this growing, stable, healthy tree that stays green all the time, leaves never wither. And uh, so we get this great picture. Now, verse 4 through six we get a huge contrast okay remember i told you talks about the righteous and the wicked the blessed and the cursed so we've been talking about the righteous now we get this this huge contrast here in verse four it says the wicked are not so and literally in the hebrew it's it's a real abrupt sort of thing it literally means not so the wicked okay in other words, this verse flatly and absolutely denies any kind of correspondence whatsoever with the characteristics and the life of the wicked with the righteous. 
The wicked are not in any way like the righteous or the man blessed in verses 1 through 3. Not in quality, not in character, not in the constitution of their lives. In other words, the wicked are not like the righteous in any of the ways that's just been described. They were the, were the righteous, avoid the godly, ungodly influences, the wicked don't. Where the righteous delight in God's word, spend time in God's word, meditate on God's word, orient their lives around God's word, the wicked don't. Where the, the righteous prosper with God's prosperity, the wicked don't. Where the righteous enjoy blessedness and happiness, the wicked don't. So it's contrasted on every level, okay? And the word wicked here, which is a key word in Psalms in our passage occurs four times, verse 1, 4, 5, and 6. And this is the primary word that the psalmist uses to describe the unrighteous. We saw it in verse 1 that one of the basic ideas of this word has to do with being loose or unstable. And so it means to be loose ethically. Okay, We talk about you know loose morals, loose ethically. But loose morals occur only because one was first negative to God or loose from Him, cut loose, excluded from the life with God, from the control and the stability that God brings in the lives of, of men that have fellowship with Him, that, that know Him. But there's more to the word than that, okay? There's another nuance of meaning here. Included in the word is sort of this idea of restless, inacti- restless activity. So it refers to a restless, sort of unquiet condition, uh, sort of an agitated, unquiet state. This person just runs from one thing to another, seeking happiness, seeking peace, seeking contentment, sometimes hurting others in the process. Uh, Isaiah sort of characterizes this in chapter 57, verses 20 and 21. He says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, which cannot rest, whose ways cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So this Hebrew word sort of graphically portrays this restlessness within those who are out of touch with God, whose hope and trust is not in the Lord, and who really in their unsatisfied and agitated state are really just sort of propelled forward in search of whatever they can find that they think might give them peace, might get them, get them satisfaction, might find them security, might find them significance, and they spend their lives chasing after it in all of the wrong places and all of the wrong ways. That's the, the wicked that we're talking about here. And, and that word translated wicked or unrighteous is, is constantly contrasted with the word righteous. Uh, the, they contrast the two different lifestyles. They contrast uh, everything about them. Uh, the righteous cling to, the, to God, love His word, and the, as a result, they're restrained, they're stable, they're upright, they're just. The wicked, not so. The wicked forsake God, ignore His word, and as a result, they are unrestrained, oppressive, and unjust. And, and really, the point of that is, is kind of what we see in, in uh, Proverbs 29, 18. It talks about the fact where there is no revelation, okay, the people cast off restraint. But blessed is he who keeps the law. Where there is no revelation, where God's word is not revealed, where God's word is not delighted in, pursued, the people cast off restraint. They're just chasing after whatever they think will make them happy, whatever they want. They're getting mine. You know, that old saying, I'm going to get me and mine. We hear kids say that. I'm going to get me and mine. That's what the wicked are chasing after. They want theirs. That's all they care about. 
They want whatever will make them happy, whatever will fulfill them, whatever will get them what they want. That's what we're talking about here. Now there's a conjunction here, the word but, but they are like the chafe which the wind drives away. Okay? Not so the wicked, the contrast here, but they are like the chafe which the wind drives away. Again, we have this conjunction which draws a real stark contrast again between the righteous and the wicked. Chafe is the seed uh, covering on the outside of the head of grain that's in, 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 uh, is separated from the grain, usually in the, in the uh, harvest process, in the threshing process. Unlike the grain or the actual seed head, has no body, no substance. It's very easily blown about by the wind. It's always unstable. Uh, it is that which is worthless, has no value, and it sort of draws the reader's attention to the uselessness of the wicked and to the ease with which God deals with them in judgment. Uh, in the same way when they're threshing grain, as they throw the grain up and the wind blows the chafe away because it's light, it floats, the grain falls back down, that's the word picture here. That's how the wicked are. That's the word picture that he uses to, to describe the wicked. So like chafe, the wicked will be separated from the grain in judgment. And uh, we see a similar idea of that in Matthew 13 where Jesus talks about the separating of the wheat and the tares. The unrighteous are ultimately worthless to God and generally worthless to society since they really corrupt and feed on others. They are unstable, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine and the trickery of man because they have no spiritual root in the word of God. There's nothing to keep them stable. They're blown around like chafe, unstable. They have no real value. But the primary focus of this text is really about judgment, okay? It goes on to say, the wicked will not be able to stand before God's judgment. They'll be driven away. They'll be driven out. So it goes on to say, therefore the wicked will not stand. The idea here in this context is that of the ability to withstand or endure God's judgment. Unbelievers will face God at the great white throne judgment, but they won't be able to stand its test. They won't be able to endure it. Only those, whether Jew or Gentile, who have the robe of Christ's righteousness because of their faith in Christ will be able to stand before God's throne. The wicked or unbelievers can't stand at the judgment. They have no basis for standing in the judgment. And they're separated and cast out because they are found without God's righteousness. He goes on to say, nor, not only can they not stand in, the, in God's judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The next part of the verse. So as a result of God's judgment at the great white throne, sinners, those without the righteousness of Christ, they're going to be excluded from the eternal blessings of God, uh, God's presence to be enjoyed, uh, of God's presence to be enjoyed by all those who stand in relation to God by faith in Christ. For the Old Testament saint, Abraham and so many others, salvation was by faith in God's covenant with Israel. As they look forward to the Messiah, the coming of the Messiah and his death, as proclaimed in the sacrificial system. That was the whole point of it. For the New Testament saint, we look backwards. Salvation is by faith in Christ alone. We look back at his sacrifice. We look at what he did. Uh, but in both cases, it's by faith through grace in God's promises, faith in God's word and faith in God's sacrifice. He goes on to say in verse 6 in sort of a summary, just kind of beginning to tie it all together. For the Lord knows the way... Of the righteous. That word knows 
is, uh, is kind of interesting. It doesn't just mean know as in the sense of knows them. Uh, God knows everything. It's often used in Scripture as a, a protective sense and refers to God's providential care and, and love of those that he knows. And it includes the eternal security of believers, his divine provision, his divine protection. It, mean God, it means that God looks out for the righteous. Uh, matter of fact, the NIV actually translated, translates this verse, the Lord watches over, and that's sort of the sense here. But ultimately, the issue here is the basis of God's judgment. And he's zeroing in on this because he says the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so the basis for this judgment is the Lord's knowledge. When you contrast the two, the Lord knows the righteous. He doesn't know the wicked. And it really is the same thing that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 7 when uh, he, talks, he says to those who are wicked, Depart from me you workers of iniquity, because I never, what? I never knew you. I never knew you. So that's ultimately the basis of the judgment that's talked about here. The Lord knows the righteous. He knows the way of the righteous. He attends to the way of righteous. It's His way. It's the way He laid out. It's the way that came through Jesus Christ. But the way of the wicked will perish. This way refers to a life course or a path. The whole point is the path of the course of the righteous is fully known by the Lord and He cares for them with love, God's loving and providential care. Really as a father cares for a child or, or like a vine dresser cares for a vineyard, the righteous, which we've already established, are believers in Christ, they'll be able to stand in God's judgment because their debt has been paid in full by the blood of Christ. So they, even when they fail, God's has foreknown them and provided for them in the complete and finished work of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul really emphasizes this in his teaching when he says in Romans that nothing can separate us from the love of God. It's anchored in Christ. There's nothing that can separate them. The righteous cannot perish because they are both in the hand of the Father and in the hand of the Son, according to John 10. But the way of the wicked will perish. They will not be able to stand in God's judgment because they've chosen to go their own way. They've not delighted in God's Word. They've not oriented their life towards God's Word. They have chosen to do things their own way. They've chosen to be their own captain. They've chosen to, to uh, guide their own lives. So just sort of looking back at this whole thing in conclusion, there's a couple of things that are clear. Uh, as, we, as we think about this, this introductory psalm, it's clear that the central issue in this psalm is God's Word, God's Holy Word, the Scriptures. The man of blessedness uh, and spiritual stability is the one whose life is built on and bathed in Scripture. Some, some may ask, well, how is this possible? How is it possible for the Word of God to have that profound of an influence on a person's life? to have that kind of stabilizing effect on a person. Well, it's because of the nature of the Bible as God's inspired, inerrant, infallible word to man. And it's because of its total sufficiency to meet every need of a person's soul. This is the emphasis and the declaration of David in Psalm 119. We won't read it, but read it in your own time. David shows us that Scripture, when known and applied can do a number of things. It can restore 
a sin-damaged and distraught soul. It can give spiritual wisdom. It can bring joy to the downcast, provide spiritual discernment. In other words, it's the same thing that Peter taught in 2 Peter 1.3. It contains all that the man needs for life and godliness. Scripture gives us everything that pertains to life and godliness. God's Word is central to everything we are and everything that we do. Think about it. By it, we come to know Christ as we're called to repent and follow Him. And by it, we find wisdom every day to, to walk in a manner that brings glory to God and leads to blessedness, not only in this life, but in the life to come. That's why there's no more fundamental issue to the, to the health and well-being of an individual believer or the health and well-being of a church uh, than a proper view of and a proper response to Scripture. That's also why the psalmist puts his finger on a person's attitude and handling of God's Word in this passage as sort of the separating point between the godly and the ungodly, between the blessed and the cursed. So I just want to leave you with two questions this morning, two questions that I've been asking as I've studied this passage and, and gone over it time and time again, two questions I'd ask you to ponder and give thought to just as points of application. Number one, how are you handling all the ungodly influences that are coming at you every day? All those voices that are being spoken into your life, all of those influences, all of those people that all purport to speak truth, but in reality they're not truth at all. In reality, they're inconsistent with God's Word. How are you handling those things? Are you walking in that counsel? Are you standing in that path? Are you associating with those kinds of people, with those kinds of thought processes? Have those things begun to shape how you think and even how you see the world to the point where you don't even realize the impact it's having on you? That's number one. Number two is, what's your attitude towards the Word of God? That's really the issue. Do you delight in it? Do you find pleasure in it? Do you want to, to study it? to find out what it says so that you can apply it, so that you can live it? Do you feed on it? Jesus said, man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. We have to feed on it. We have to delight in it. So I'll leave you with those two questions, and I would just suggest that how we answer those two questions will provide us with some pretty decent insight into what path we're traveling and what road we're on. Would you pray with me?